Well, good morning. I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. And if you've got children and, ch- and you'd like them to be in Sunday school at this time, up through sixth grade, you can certainly have them dismissed the foyer at this time. Their teachers are on their way out. Special thank you to, to Alex, Amy, and Mike as they faithfully lead us in hymns at the back end of our service each week. And it's so, um, so important to, uh, today, as I was listening, I told First Service that um, that hymn, that last hymn we sang, was written in the 8th century. And if you think about how many believers have sung those truths since that time in all manner of circumstances. And, uh, you know, there's difficult times certainly everywhere. There's been difficult times throughout the ages. And, uh, but we know faithfully uh, that God has said who he is and that he faithfully does what he says he's going to do. And what a blessing that is to just recount those, those words in that hymn like so many believers who've come before have done that. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we are in a continuing study through First and Second Corinthians, and last week we set it aside just temporarily so that we could hear from our missionaries to Brazil, Eli and Jess Elliott, what a blessing that was to see all that God has, has uh, set up for them and that they're going to be going soon uh, to Brazil on the field in the tribe, and we're, we're very excited about that, but we uh, set this, uh, this uh, study aside for that. We're going to be back in it today, so turn in your copy of God's Word if you would, Second Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and so it'll be, uh, we're going to be reading together the first seven verses as we make the most of our time today. Paul picks up this way. He says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 3. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows, was caught up, verse 4, into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Verse 5, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. Verse 6, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Let's stop right there. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. He says it's not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to say that the pure in heart shall see God, for it is only the pure in heart that want to. He goes on to say we're very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We're afraid of the jeer about, quote, pie in the sky and of being told that we're trying to, quote, escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But he goes on to say, but either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there's not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. If there is, then this is truth, and like any other, must be faced, whether it is useful at political meetings or no. I think that's an important thing to think about because the question is moot for Paul, right? Because we just read, as we read last uh, time we were together, that Paul's actually been there. And he's going to have to talk about it. And he's not comfortable with doing that. 
we've seen he has to do this, and we've seen that since chapter 10 that he has false teachers in the church, and they've been making some boasts about who they are and what they can do, and they've denigrated Paul. And so Paul has had to come into a place where he's not comfortable and talk about his authority and his, uh, his background and as an apostle, as a true apostle. He wants to make the church confident in what he's taught them for 18 months. He wants them to, to know that what he said is true and also to know that what they're being taught now is false and recognize him as a faithful leader. And he's done it in ways that we didn't expect. Of course, we started in chapter 10 and he began to talk about his bio, but it wasn't what you would expect, that he's a great teacher. He's planted a lot of churches. He's well-educated and all those kinds of things. He talks about how many times he's been beaten, beaten how many times he's been thrown in jail, all the times he's spent in hunger and thirst and all those kinds of things. And so it's no different from this new section. He's doing it in a way perhaps that we didn't expect. But he's going to give some important information about a spiritual experience. Uh, Heaven isn't a bribe. He's not shy about talking about it. In fact, he would say the one who is most concerned about heaven for the future is the one who's most effective in the present. Knowing that you're going to see your boss in a couple of weeks, you're going to make sure the job he's given you to do is done. Knowing that there is reward for what you've done, you're going to make sure that you do it to the best of your ability. But he didn't like to talk about his experience there. So as he prepares to do it, he says it's not profitable. And we saw last time that this is an important point he's making. He's going to begin talking about his spiritual experience in heaven and his time with the Lord. And Paul says, he's he's never spoken about it before. It's been 14 years since it happened. But he reiterates that boasting is not profitable. And boasting about visions and revelations in particular here, as he's connected that comment, are not profitable. It's not that he doesn't talk about heaven, he does. It's just that he doesn't want to talk about being there. And it's, profitable, it's, it's certainly probable that the false apostles boasted about the visions and supernatural experiences and revelations that they had. And Paul hates to boast, and we've seen this over and over again. It's not a sin, it's just not profitable to carry on a conversation about your authority to do or say something with someone who is determined to believe that you are not competent to do either. So that's the situation he's in. And so it's a fine line he has to walk. And that being the case, Paul would likely never have mentioned his visions and his supernatural revelation unless the false apostles had already done that. Because what would be the point? It would just cause ridicule for him and just more uh, more undermining of his authority. And so Paul says, visions and revelations of the Lord, which really happened to me, are not helpful for me to talk about. And that's what not profitable means. And last time together, we saw that was our fourth mark of a faithful minister. He focuses on things that are profitable for the church. And here we see that uh, visions and dreams are not part of that profitable ministry. In fact, we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, what is profitable? It's very clear, right? Paul said to his son in the faith, he said, all scripture is inspired by God, and here's our word, profitable. What's it profitable for? For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we spend time verse by verse, word by word going through the scripture, and many churches do that. Why? Because that's profitable. It's not profitable for me to talk about something that's happened to me. It's profitable for me to teach the word of God to you over and over again, and you assimilate that. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's how we grow. So Paul says, and we're going to see this later, it's um, not profitable for me to talk about it. But it's interesting, though, um, what we probably have seen, certainly it was in in the first century, it's still now, that's... um, That's what false teachers always want to talk about. They want to talk about their revelations. They want to talk about their special word from the Lord. They want to talk about their dreams that they had. And they want to let that establish the authority and the direction for the church. But Paul says, that's not profitable. Now, it's not profitable, Paul, 
because Paul, we saw before, because the, it tends to build his pride, and we're going to see that again. It's not profitable becomes, because it becomes a temptation for arrogance for him. And certainly we see that in false teachers that tends to make people assume more about me, he says, than they can see and know in me. And that certainly is the case for false teachers. They want people to assume things about them, to, to expect that they're spiritual, to think that they have some uh, super authority. They're getting things nobody else gets. That kind of thing is very common, very common in Paul's time. And it's not profitable, basically, Paul says, because it can't help you, because they were personal visions and revelations that were given to me. Now, look at verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And verse 3 says, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And again, uh, even in the middle of this obviously powerful revelation of importance, Paul comes across as weak. And he just gives his opponents so much more, uh, so much more ammunition. He doesn't know if he was there in person, in his body, or if he was just there in spirit, and his body stayed on earth. All he knows is that he was caught up to the third heaven. And, and so the false, false teachers, as they've ridiculed him before, are going to ridicule him again and say, what? You know, he doesn't even know if he was really there. You know, he doesn't know if it was just a dream, and he, you know, he certainly doesn't have the authority that we have where we know that God has spoken to us and given us a word for the church. So it, Paul just comes across looking weak, and that's not surprising for us, is it? Because Paul doesn't want to draw attention to something that's going to make people seem, uh, feel something that, that, that perhaps is not there. Now, look at, look at the last part of 2 Corinthians 12.1, if you would. And you're going to need your Bible open, so make sure it's open. Make sure your tablet's open so you can read along with us. Verse 1, but I will go on, he says, to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, just for clarity, and we said this before, and I think it's important to point out, all the visions that Paul had would include revelation, right? I mean, there'd be no point in, Paul, in the Lord giving Paul a vision if he wasn't giving him also revelation. But not all revelations Paul had had to be in the form of a vision. And we certainly see that. Right? It just seems obvious from what we see in the Word of God about Paul. So he had visions and he had revelations all through the book of Acts. And we know some of them, don't we? We know that the Lord revealed to him many things which he passed on to the church. In fact, I've pointed this out to you before in other books. Anytime we see Paul say, I received this from the Lord, this certain thing I passed on to you, we know that he received revelation about how to celebrate communion, or perhaps what the Lord says about singleness, those kinds of things. Jesus actually instructed him, as we see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. For what I would have you know, Paul says, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So just straight revelation, without any reason to think it was a vision, equipping him for the ministry. And we looked at the most obvious vision last time from Acts 9, right? You remember this. Paul's on the Damascus Road. And everybody around heard the voice, but no one saw anything except for Paul. And he says, let me recount to you, though, a vision that you haven't heard anything about. And then he goes into verse 2 and, and, and gives us that vision. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak so as we pointed out he speaks here in the third person and when you first start reading about it you think okay he's talking about himself and then you get into it a little bit and you realize you start thinking who actually is he talking about he's talking in the third person is he talking about someone else and you have to read all the way down to verse 7 which we did to realize he actually is speaking about himself but that's not 
again, how an average person perhaps might recount an experience like this. And it's not unlike Paul to do it this way. I mean, the second someone got back from heaven, they would probably announce, what? I got to go to heaven, right? I mean, that's precisely what we see in all the books, isn't it? I mean, and then a movie based on the book. That's precisely how that works. Paul doesn't do that. He says, I know a man in Christ, just in general. That's a believer, someone who is in Christ. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But that's enough qualification, isn't it? Because you can think you went to heaven, but if you're not a believer and in Christ's death and resurrection, then regardless of what you might think, you did not go to heaven. So most people would immediately say, you know, I went to heaven. But Paul speaks in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. That's what he says. Paul's revealing something that apparently has been a secret for 14 years. He hasn't said a word about it before. And when he says, I know a man in Christ, he just refers him to himself indirectly as a man in Christ. What is Paul indicating when he refers to himself as a man in Christ? Just an ordinary believer redeemed by grace through faith. So in other words, he didn't get to go because he was someone special. He didn't get to go because he was the Apostle Paul. And we know that's the case because he uses the compound adjective, toyotan, such a kind as this. So he says, I'm a man in Christ, and then he repeats it four times. Such a man in verse 2, such a man in verse 3, man, verse 4, such a man, verse 5. And the particle toy is nevertheless, and the pronoun hotos is this or these or he. So the idea is this, the meaning is clear, such a one, an ordinary man in Christ. Nothing special. And that's not surprising, again, knowing what we know of Paul. And here's the thing. Paul had already received his call to apostleship when he was taken to heaven. And he implies later that he was given this blessing to strengthen his ministry. So he's obviously aware that at that time, a mark this beloved, he was regarded by heaven as no more than an ordinary believer and someone who, by definition, received all that he had from the Lord. He was under no illusion that he was under some special favor from God to get this special treat. As an apostle, which he was then, he neither deserved nor made up the journey. And although, as we pointed out, and we remind ourselves in a few minutes, he needed the journey, certainly. Such a one, an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Christian, traveled to and marked us, beloved. And this is what we're going to grasp today. The heavenly dwelling place of God. but he would never affirm that he was anyone special. Because that's always a problem, isn't it? I want you to turn, hold your finger here, Luke 17. As I was studying this week, I, I, was, I was drawn to this passage. If you've never read this passage before, it's going to be a shock to you. Because the disciples always struggled with this kind of thing, with imagining themselves as important, right? I mean, do you remember when Jesus washed their feet, they immediately got on the road, what were they arguing about? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, right? Right after Jesus washed their feet, they're on the road arguing about who's going to be sitting next to the king. And you remember Jesus said, you know, great men lord it over you, but that's not how it is with you, right? If you want to be over everybody, you've got to be a servant of everybody, right? And so they weren't catching this, and this was a difficult time, uh, and they were always, let's call down, you know, lightning and thunder on these people, right? Let's, let's call down death on these people. They won't listen to us. And they always imagined themselves as something special, see and, and we have the same problem don't we 
Or we think that we get the, the favorable wink from God because we do some cool thing for the Lord or He chooses to use us in some way. Or you get out there a lot of years into ministry or a lot of years as a believer and we think we're regarded with some special look from the Lord like a favorite grandchild. He thinks a lot of me because I've done a lot for Him, right? But in this passage right here, the disciples right before it, in verse 6, they ask Jesus to increase their faith. So they want to grow in faith, and the very thing he points to is probably not what they expect. So look at verse 7. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? So what's, what's the scenario? It's a parable. It's a heavenly point he's going to make with an earthly story, and so they're going to understand this. He imagines them to be the master, and he's got people who are working for him. They're out in the field, and they're working hard and doing what they're supposed to do. And when they come in, uh, he, he says, you, you're not going to ask them. You're not going to tell them to sit down, and you're going to serve them, right? What are you going to say? You're going to say, please serve me. In fact, he says in verse 8, will you not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink. So in other words, when you come in, don't come in all sweaty and dirty and stuff from the field. Get yourself washed up. Get my meal on the table. And then after I've eaten, you can eat. That's the way life is, right? If you have people working for you, they work for you, and they do the thing you're supposed to do. Now, look at verse 9, and I think this is going to be the part that may be a shocker to you. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Who's he talking to? So he's talking to his disciples, arguably uh, most obedient men around at that point, right? They were following him. They'd left everything. They were doing what he asked to do. They were going and, and uh, exercising their faith and going into the communities and giving out the gospel and all that, right? I mean, arguably, they were fairly important, I would say, from our perspective, certainly. But Jesus is really setting that, that even starting line for everybody. This is where you stay. What is it? He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded. Does he? And what's the implied? No. It was commanded, so you just do it, correct? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, so here's where it connects to the disciples and every disciple after that, say, we are unworthy slaves, we've done only that which we ought to have done. That's shocking, isn't it? What's Jesus' point here? Everybody's at the same level, right? And we, don't, we shouldn't expect some special favor just because we're doing what he commands. Are we not a bond slave of Christ? Is that not the way we're described? So are we supposed to do what the Bible says? Yes. Do, should we receive any special favor just because we're, be, we're doing what's commanded? No. No, we're doing what we're supposed to do. Right? And I think that that's a very good way to realize how Paul regarded himself. I mean, we think about Paul up here, and I've told you before, Paul looking down his glasses saying, Parker, get your act together. But Paul regarded himself as just an average believer Saved by grace through faith. And he got this opportunity not because he was anything special. And we understand that's very clear, clearly from Jesus here as he talks to his disciples. Increase our faith. Okay, here's one. Just do what you're commanded to do and don't expect some special thanks because you're doing what the master said to do. And that's how Paul regarded himself. And so it's important, although I think somewhat easy to overlook, a mark of a faithful minister. We saw our first four marks in the passage were a heart for the health of the church, compassionate over the needs of the church. These things mark a faithful pastor, certainly for Paul and a, a true apostle. Doesn't operate under his own power, so you have no power to accomplish anything for the kingdom in and of himself. Number four we just looked at, focuses on the things which are profitable for the church, which is the word of God. 
And then this fifth mark is just so obvious here. And we've marked it before because we've seen it numerous times as it regards Paul and faithful ministers throughout the ages, but it's worth repeating. The fifth mark of a faithful minister, he's humble. In other words, he knows he's no one special. And we always have to battle with that, don't we? We're nobody special when it comes right down to it. No matter how the Lord may use him, Paul's just a man of Christ. Such a man like many who, who are to say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. See, and Paul had assimilated that. That was his identity. I'm just a normal believer in Christ, saved by grace. And I think that's an important point, and it has, I think, some benefit, just thinking about that for a minute or two. And it brings a lot of things in our lives into perspective, doesn't it? Regardless of how long you've been in the faith, how much ministry you've done, we are just unworthy slaves. We didn't deserve the position we have. We don't deserve the continued grace we stand in. We don't deserve the home in heaven, the reward that comes as a result of serving the King of Kings, but we're going to get that, so we're just unworthy, and we just do what's been commanded, see? Now, look, let's move on to verse 2. It says this, I know a man in Christ, these words, who 14 years ago. And we said last time, we're just going to look at some scriptures and figure out what we can know about the time that this happened. It's not it's not something that we have to sit and, and really mark too much. There's not a lot there. Paul didn't talk about it, obviously. This is the first time he said anything about it. So just this. I think you can probably put it in your, in your mind. There's been some misinformation out there. A number of uh, commentaries have it wrong. But if he wrote 2 Corinthians somewhere between 55 and 56 AD, which he did, we know that the event occurred as he's relaying it to the church in the letter 14 years before the time of the writing of this letter. That makes sense, right? So that would be about AD 41 to 43, somewhere in that area, depending if it's the beginning or end of the year, approximately there. Now, we know that Paul was sent out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas around AD 45. So that means it happened before Paul's main ministry. So sometime after his ignominious departure from Damascus, right, where he's lowered down in a basket while people are trying to kill him, and he relays this to, uh, to the false apostles in, in Corinth and says, listen, you know, I'm so not in control of my surroundings like you supposedly are that I was chased out of the city and lowered in a basket. So after that, he goes to Jerusalem and he starts refuting the Jews in Jerusalem. And we, we see all this, all this is all laid out for us in Acts 13 and following. But he goes, he goes to uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem and he and he starts refuting them, and, and he's able to stand up and prove that Christ is Messiah. So everybody wants to kill him in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is all up in arms because Paul's just stirring up a bunch of trouble, and they would rather not do that. So they ask Paul, go to Tarsus, Paul. Just, to, you know, go to Tarsus and study and, and chill a little bit. Let us chill a little bit. And so there's some peace in Jerusalem. So Paul goes away, and he's gone about three years, according to Galatians 1, 17 and 18. So it was likely then, before his first missionary journey, during that time, right at the end of that time, it's definitely not on the Damascus Road vision, which occurred maybe AD 38 or 39, so that would be too early. It was more than 14 years from the writing. And Paul spoke about that vision over and over again, so obviously that, that's not it. And it couldn't have occurred, and this is one where you see this in, in commentaries, it couldn't have occurred when he was stoned, apparently to death, remember? Carried out of the city, stoned, and then uh, got back up and went back in the city and, and encouraged the believers. So it couldn't be that, then because that would have been too late. It had been closer than 14 years, quite a bit closer. So it just appears that Paul intends for the church, including us, to know when it happened 14 years before the writing, 
not where it occurred or the circumstances surrounding the occasion. He doesn't say anything about that, although he knows this because he knows it was 14 years before. And I think it's an interesting point. The Corinthian church was likely just as limited as we are. Sometimes when we read in the epistles, we see Paul say, and the, he'll say, the disciple whom you know will be coming. So we don't know who that is, but the church would have. But here, I think the Corinthian church is just as much in the dark as we are. They don't know any more than we do. So sometime just before he launched into his ministry in Acts 13, the Lord gave him this trip to heaven. And that seems to go well with some of the things we've noted before on this possible why of the experience. If you remember, we asked the question, why did the Lord allow Paul to do this? It's just so unusual and so powerful and so meaningful. And then he couldn't say much about it and didn't want to say what he could have said. And we'll see that in just a minute. But we saw that maybe it was because he was going to suffer so much. And that makes sense if it happens right before the beginning of his ministry because he starts in the ministry. He's immediately in dangers in the city, in dangers in the country, in dangers of, of, uh, of bandits and dangers of his own country. Remember this? Without food and clothing and cold and, and all of that. So it's before that all starts. And, and before the Lord launches him into his ministry, he gives him this vision, which is exactly what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9, 15, and 16. Ananias is supposed to go and talk to Paul. Paul's still blind at that point from the Damascus Road. And he says to him, uh, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul had that personal experience with the Lord. He heard things no one else had heard. He didn't, it didn't benefit anyone else directly, but maybe it spurred Paul on to hard times. And that makes sense, doesn't it? To know that what waits you is so much greater than what you're going to go through, it makes it seem small by comparison. Or perhaps, like everyone who struggles with holding on to the affairs of this life, Maybe it helped Paul to not hold on to his life so dearly. We struggle with that, don't we? I mean, we desire very much to, um, to be with the Lord. We, we could say this in Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. But can we say that as genuinely as Paul can? Because we hold on to stuff too, right? We've got our family. We want to see them grow. We'd like to be, you know, in this world a little longer. And that's not bad. The Lord gave us this life to live and everything that is good that happens is a gift from his hand. So I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying in general, though, I don't think we could say it convincingly as Paul does. I'm hard pressed from both directions. Either way is good. In fact, I'd rather be with the Lord. It's hard for us to say that, but it wasn't hard for Paul. Why? Perhaps because he got to be there for a short time. And I think that would change our perspective too, don't you? Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Is that how it feels when someone you know dies? You know, when my mom passed away a few years ago, I didn't feel it was a blessing because I knew where she was, right? But the intervening feelings didn't feel like a blessing, did it? But perhaps had I had the experience that Paul had and the experience my mom had a moment after she closed her eyes, it'd be different. I could say it differently, right? But So we're supposed to express that by faith, aren't we? And, and we can because we're strengthened because of Paul's experience. And, and perhaps maybe it helped him look forward to all he had seen and heard so he could say in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And you could make the argument that the Apostle Paul suffered more than any apostlehood to suffer in the spreading of the gospel. And so the Lord literally gave him a glimpse of the glory that was to come to help him. And that helps us too, doesn't it? It helps us to understand in the middle of physical suffering and sickness perhaps, maybe you're in a relationship difficulty, maybe you're in financial difficulty, and you're struggling. And then you realize, you read this passage, and you realize Paul has been there 
and you, and you can see, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. You can't even mention them in the same sentence with what's to come because what's to come is so much greater than the small things that beset us now. And I think that's helpful for us, don't you? And, and we certainly know the corresponding thorn in the flesh, which we're going to look at, that God gave him uh, to keep him from being arrogant and helped him to learn to minister through weakness so the power of the message of Christ would be clear. We see him saying in 2 Corinthians 12.10, we'll see this in a few weeks. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. Can we say that? That's hard, isn't it? Are you content with weaknesses? We want to be strong, don't we? We want to portray strength. We want to, we want to be strong in the day-to-day life. Paul says, I'm well content with being weak, with insults, distresses, persecutions. Are you okay with insults? Typically not, right? But Paul was. Why? Because again, he had a glimpse of the glory to come. He had a glimpse of the, of the Messiah. He understood what waited him. He understood the reward. He understood those kinds of things, see? So Paul said, I'm well content. Weakness, insult, distress, persecutions, difficulties. Difficulties, we saw that word before. That's things that are in your life that will never change. You're going to deal with that all your life, whether it's a difficult physical thing, whether it's a difficult uh, emotional thing, mental thing, whatever it is. Difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, how could he be well content? I'm okay with him. I saw heaven. He knows. Maybe it helped him realize what it meant to be crucified with Christ and willingly bear the marks of Christ. Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Did they still? Yes. Why? For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And you can hear him kind of say, do you bear on your body the brand marks of Jesus? As Paul did. He was perfectly fine with that, right? Because he saw the risen Messiah. He saw the hands and the feet and the side. He saw Christ alive. And I think these are all are helpful for us, aren't they? They're, they help us think through these verses and realize that as Paul penned them, in his mind, he understood what it really was like. And so we can then, because of faith, rest assured in what Paul has said see, and go forward from there. So sometime just before he was launched into ministry in Acts 13, the Lord gave him this trip to heaven. Now look at the last part of verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now I want you to hold your finger here, if you would, and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Will you do that? Acts seven fifty-two. Just flip over there. It's an interesting passage I was thinking about this week as, as I wanted to illustrate. The Bible explains the Bible. And I thought it was very ironic, this passage, and you're probably familiar with it, but if you're not, I think you'll, you'll see why we're going to read it. So Stephen is preaching to the Jews, and he made them feel really good about themselves, right? He, he was just so positive, and God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you know God wants you to be healthy and all that, and you've done such a great job. Did he do that? No. That wasn't what he did. So the Jews had this imagination of long faithfulness. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Sadducees. And uh, Stephen says this. Look at verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your father not persecute? Well, that's an interesting opening statement, right? That's not going to make any friends and, and influence people. It's not going to be received well, right? So who's the audience? It's um, a number of people and one you'll know. Verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. So in other words, your ancestors killed all the prophets who talked about the Messiah coming, and then the Messiah came, and you killed him. 
So he's, I mean, he's batting a thousand here, okay? He's headed in the wrong direction from a, you know, a making people feel good with your sermons kind of thing. Verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. So these are people who are experts in the law, like Paul would say, uh, according to the law, blameless. They would say they kept the law perfectly. He says, you got the law from angels and you didn't keep it. Verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of, the, of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now mark that. That's interesting, huh? That's kind of what we're talking about. Verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. And When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. So he is at the bottom of a hill after they beat him down and they're throwing stones from the top of a hill to hit him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named, who's there? Saul. Jews are always killing the wrong people, and now they're going to kill Stephen, right? They killed the prophets who talked about the Messiah, they killed the Messiah, and now Stephen's on the list next. And Saul's right there. And you can just imagine, because he looked at himself as someone who was of the law blameless, an educated guy, he ran around from town to town later and grabbed Christians and, and persecuted them and sh stuck them in jail. And So Saul's there, he's holding their, their, their clothing, verse 59, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit, and then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What did Stephen get to see right before he died? Can you imagine the impact on Paul, who later got to see and hear even more, after he had been, no doubt, incensed along with all the other Jews about what Stephen had said? How ironic is that? That the Lord gives Paul an even greater understanding than Stephen had after he had persecuted Stephen, certainly, and participated. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man, here it is, was caught up to the third heaven. So even Paul couldn't explain the nature of the vision. He just says it was harpagenta, Greek aorist, passive participle. I was caught up or caught away, he says. And the root of this word has to do with choosing or taking for oneself. So catching up something that's yours, catching up something that's valuable. And, and it has this important connection, and we'll just say it because it's here and the words of the Bible mean something. It's the same word we understand as representing the rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's a sudden snatching up, a catching away. Paul says 14 years ago, he knew the time, he knew the reality of the event, he knew how to describe it. And very importantly, later, he uses the same word to describe what happens to believers when Christ comes at the beginning of the tribulation period, and he uses the exact same word, and the experience is very, very similar, is it not? We know when the rapture occurs, those who are uh, alive and remain will not precede those who are already in the grave, so they'll be caught up first, and then those who are alive and remain get caught up as well. And I don't think that's an accident, using the same word, and it means basically the same thing. Another interesting fact you remember Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Again, the Bible helps to explain the Bible. When Jesus met with his apostles for the last time, and after he gave them the final instructions and told them to go to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit would come, you remember this, and then what did he do? He 
ascended out of sight, right? And then the angels come while they're standing looking up in the sky. They don't see him anymore. Why are you still standing here? Go do what Jesus told you to do, right? It's good, good, uh, good encouragement for all of us, right? Get busy with what he gave you to do. But John, as he's revealing the vision he received in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, look at what he says. As he talks about in this vision, he talks about the past and, and the first advent of Christ, and of course he's going to talk about the second one. He talks about Jesus, and he says, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, talking about Jesus, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's how we know it's him. He's going to come after the tribulation. That's what he's going to do. And her child was, here's our word, caught up to God and to his throne. So that describes Acts chapter 1, verse 9, doesn't it? Because that's precisely what happened. Jesus was taken up to the throne. And so Paul uses this word that he was caught up. He uses it again in 1 Thessalonians 4 to talk about the rapture. And John uses it too, and it all means exactly the same thing. Now, Paul doesn't know the nature of it. He just says, all of a sudden, I was in heaven. I don't know whether it was in my body and my soul together or whether it was just my soul and my body was down here. Either could have been the case. Neither one was impossible because we know in 1 Thessalonians 4 that both of those are the case, right? So either could have been the case. It was Paul in bodily form there before the throne. It could have been just Paul's soul there temporarily. Neither of those was impossible. God knew and 14 years later, God knew, and God still knows, and we don't. And we don't have to have those details, do we? And I think it's important to point out, again, by way of comparison, false apostles always want to embellish the details, right? You've heard some of these charismatic churches, progressives. You know, I was on my recliner with my shoes off, and the Lord gave me a vision for the church and for the future and for what we're supposed to do. And I have a word for the church today. It's always all the details, right? I've heard this over and over again. It's like, please. It's like Paul's indicting them because he's not giving them the details with no doubt the false ones there in Corinth did because they still do it now, right? God struck me with a new thing he's going to do, and I want to give this to you so that people will look at this false apostle, this false teacher now in the church as if they've got some kind of power that nobody else has, and it gives them authority uh, that they didn't earn, right? Paul says the opposite. I don't want you to think about me anymore that you've heard me say or seen to be in me. That's all I want. I don't want any authority because I had this vision. Don't give me anything that I don't deserve, okay? I'm just a common believer saved by grace. The false apostles love to embellish the details, so Paul's really undermining the false apostles. He doesn't have to embellish. He makes it clear later that he really couldn't relay what was shared with him in heaven. So for Paul, what happened to him was an act of grace. In that, mark this, beloved, the Lord, desiring to have the apostle with him for a time, removed him from this world. That's wonderful, isn't it? Because that's the only way Paul would have got to go. The Lord decided that he wanted to spend some time with Paul, and he brought him up there to do it. That's, I, just love, I just love thinking about that. The Lord in his kindness, the Lord in his generosity, the Lord in his faithfulness, knowing what Paul would go through, just said, I'm going to bring you up here for a little bit. I'm going to make sure you're encouraged for the battle because you're going to have a hard one. Look at the next section, verse 3. He says, and I know how, so he changes that a little bit, such a man, and then we get the, the parenthetical statement again whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows. So that's that parenthetical statement, the disclaimer. I don't really know the details there. I don't know if I was alive in the flesh or just with my spirit. Then he says, verse four, and I know how such a man, verse four, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. 
And so he repeats what he said, and then he adds, I know how. And that's present active indicative. So I know how it all went down. It's still impacting my life now. I was there. I saw it. I, I experienced it. It, it. it impacts my reality today. I don't know if I was in my body or just in my spirit, but I still know what happened. And then he says, uh, verse 4, I was caught up. That's our word again. Caught away. Intentionally chosen to be taken. So he says it twice here. This time he says, into paradise. And so as we see paradise put in here, then paradise equals heaven because he's using it in parallel with the third heaven, right? I mean, the exact same statement, and then he uses paradise. He uses third heaven the first time, paradise the second time, exact same statement, so they have to be equal. But it's even more descriptive. And if you've looked at this word paradise before, and you've probably heard it before, Catholics have, have uh, changed it and messed it up, but the fact of the matter is this is a Persian origin word, and it's a word that just simply means garden. And you are probably familiar with or have read about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, where there was supposed a series of ascending tiered gardens containing a wide variety of trees and, and shrubs and, and fruit and vines built by King Nebuchadnezzar. And you know that's the King Daniel was interacting with, so we know this. And uh, that would have been found in modern-day Iraq, somewhere near the present day of Hilla, the present city of Hilla. The Assyrian king, King Sennacherib, has a well-documented garden, a massive garden built in the capital city of Nineveh, which you're familiar with from Jonah. A massive, wonderful garden near the, the Tigris River, modern-day city of Mosul. So gardens were big in the ancient world, a place to escape uh, the heat and dusty environment. It was even big in people, people didn't have a lot of money, right? A, mo a modest income would still have a courtyard where you would have some fruit trees and you have a fountain and you have some vines and you'd have some shade. It was a reprieve from the heat and all of that of, of the climate. And so people, this is a very big part of society. And you can certainly see it from our two examples. The King's Garden had to be the most wonderful garden of all, right? I mean, unlimited resources. Uh, certainly it was a, a display of his wealth, a display of, his, of his, uh, his power. But a garden was a very, very important part of that society. The King's Garden was the greatest garden of all. And when a ruler wanted to bestow really great honor on someone, they were invited to walk in the royal garden because that was a private sanctuary for the king. And I'm saying all this because this is the type of background you need to have when you hear that word. And that's the word Paul uses. And, and I don't want to make more of it than Paul does because he has, more, he has more to say, but we can at least say that much, can we not? If we understand the background of the word, and that's enough, isn't it? To know, at least in part, of what God has prepared for those who love him. He caused Paul, carried along Paul, to use the word paradise. And it isn't the only place we see that word. And now that you know something about it, look at this place. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, Jesus is on the cross. He's in the midst of the pain and the shame of bearing our sins. He was up there with two other people, wasn't he? And verse 39 says, one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, said, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then verse 41, And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our, needs, our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he was saying to Jesus, verse 42, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me. Where? Beloved. And how good do you think that sounded to a thief being crucified for his crimes, that the moment that he died, he would be with the Lord. And he understood that word for sure. 
And the New Testament church at Ephesus, and we know as we've studied Revelation and we went through it, all those churches, those seven churches, are representative of the church age. We're still in the church age, so all those examples that we have of the churches are still viable and are part of what the church looks like. But in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Guess where it is? Where is it? It's in the paradise of God. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So not only is it a garden, we, also, we imagined it to be a garden, which is the background, and then we find out there's a tree growing there, and it's the tree of life, and if you overcome... And Jesus, because of the cross, has caused you to be an overcomer. We understand that. And you get to be there. So, beloved, it's not just a pretend place. It's not a place where you go, as a Catholic say, to, to pay penance for your sin until you've paid enough and then you can get on into heaven. This is heaven. It's used in parallel. It's a part of what we're supposed to understand about what God has prepared for those who love him. And I think that's important. And it was what Paul experienced. And it was powerful enough for him to write the things he wrote later to encourage the churches and if we understand what he went through, it becomes obvious why he was so torn between two, wanting to depart and be with Christ, which is, what did he say? Far better, but being here with you is good for you. See? It's not just a pretend place. It, it's not just a word with no exact meaning. That's the word Paul has carried along to use for heaven. And beloved, think about this. If these other earthly, worldly kings could make remarkable gardens... In fact, one of them was a seven, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Imagine the one that the king of kings can make. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? So he called Paul up to meet, of all places, in the garden. And, and I think it's impossible and perhaps unwise to extrapolate further with the passage because Paul doesn't spend time talking about it. In fact, the details specifically are ones that are hidden except for the words which we know. But what we know of it is amazing, isn't it? Paul says, I was called up to paradise which just further defines heaven. And we know biblically this is the third heaven. It's the dwelling place of God. And paradise would indicate that Paul was called up to walk in the garden with the king. So are you. You get that too. If you come to faith in Christ, that is also your future. I just say, wow. It's part of the nature of a life in heaven. And Paul said he was a man in Christ, an ordinary believer redeemed by grace through faith. He didn't get to go because he was somebody special. He didn't get to go because he was an apostle. He was such a kind as this, an ordinary run-of-the-mill Christian, he says it four different times to make sure you understood. There's nothing special about him. And then he says this, and we're going to close with this. We're out of time. Verse 4. He's caught up into paradise, and this heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. What did he hear? I don't know what he heard, and neither does anybody else. Right? Just the Apostle Paul. Nobody but Paul heard what he heard. And that's the Greek adjective, eretos. It just means, it can mean two different things. It can mean words that cannot be spoken. And we certainly know from verse 4, it's words that 
must not be spoken. So both are true. Paul heard words he can't speak. Paul heard words he must not speak. It seems the only words we're familiar with are the words that are spoken, right? But he heard things that he couldn't communicate. I mean, you know, people say in, in, uh, in false churches, I'm speaking angel language. Well, it seems obvious enough to point out that um, the only time we've ever heard angels speak, they speak human language, right? But here, Paul heard words and things that he couldn't communicate. Things from heaven, and perhaps no earthly words are available to relay it. Maybe it's something that our current human language can't convey. And then, even if there were, Paul says, I'm not allowed to share it. Even if I understood what to say, I'm not supposed to say it. It's so opposite of false teachers who want you to imagine that they've got some powerful connection to heaven that no one else has. I was like, listen, I, I don't even know how to express it, and even if I could, I couldn't say it. And I don't even know if I was there in my body or just in my spirit. I just know I was there, and I got to be in paradise. And then he relays all these other things. And what an encouragement it is. And I think those things are pretty exciting, don't you? Wouldn't you like to go there? You have to be in Christ. You have to confess and repent. Confess Jesus as Lord, repent of your sins, and believe on Christ as the only way. And that will be your final spot. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of knowing you and of being in your word and, and uh, enjoying the time together. Uh, the fellowship of the saints is so sweet, the time that we can sing together and give and, and pray for one another and worship you. It's just such a bond there, a joy of being on this journey together. We thank you for uh, giving us an opportunity to be here. We pray that as we go out, we'll be uh, about those things you've told us to do, not staring up, waiting for Jesus, although we look forward to that time we'll be with him but getting about the business of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors, ourself, and giving the gospel to every creature and teaching them to observe all that you've told us. I us be that kind of person, Father, and I pray that we'll be all the more motivated because we know what awaits us, albeit through Paul's experience. And then watching Paul's life, we recognize that it made a significant impact on him when he understood what was waiting. So, Father, I pray we'll be then motivated the same way by faith to act similarly. And we thank you for an opportunity that we can have to receive Christ as our Savior. We don't always uh, give an invitation, Father, to do this because sometimes the passage doesn't lend itself to But certainly, if, if this, seem, this seems so marvelous, but the only way you can be there is to be in Christ. To be in Christ is to be hidden in his suffering on the cross and his resurrection by repenting and asking forgiveness confessing Jesus as Lord and believing on him. He raised him from the dead. It's very simple. It has to be the desire of your heart to do that. May this be the day. Father, if there's some out here who hear this message and are not bound for this marvelous thing you've created for those who love you, may today be the day that they confess you as Lord. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.